Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and you're listening to Disruptive, the podcast from Harvard's Wyss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering. The mission of the Wyss Institute is to transform healthcare, industry, and the environment by emulating the way nature builds. Our bodies and all living systems accomplish tasks far more sophisticated and dynamic than any entity yet designed by humans. By emulating nature's principles for self-organizing and self-regulating, these researchers develop innovative engineering solutions for healthcare, energy, architecture, robotics, and manufacturing. In this episode of Disruptive, we will focus on a cancer vaccine and hydrogel drug depots, both being developed by Vee's founding core faculty member, Dave Mooney. Mooney says the human immune system is the most efficient weapon on the planet to fight disease. Cancer, however, resists treatment and cure by evading the immune system. Unlike bacterial cells or viruses, cancer cells belong in the body but are simply mutated and misplaced. Scientists have been trying to develop vaccines that provoke the immune system to recognize cancer cells as foreign and attack them. The approach developed by Mooney's group, in which they reprogram immune cells from inside the body using implantable biomaterials, appears simpler and more effective than other cancer vaccines currently in clinical trials. In one study, 50% of mice treated with two doses of the vaccine, mice that would have otherwise died from melanoma within about 25 days, showed complete tumor regression. On a second front, when it comes to delivering drugs or protein-based therapeutics, doctors often give patients pills or inject the drug into their bloodstream. Both are inefficient methods for delivering effective doses to targeted tissues. Mooney and his team at Wyss are taking a new approach, using biocompatible and biodegradable hydrogels. They've developed a gel-based sponge that can be molded to any shape, loaded with drugs or stem cells, compressed to a fraction of its size, and delivered via injection. Once inside the body, it pops back to its original shape, gradually releases its payload, and safely degrades. After we explore both of these exciting projects with Mooney, we'll take a closer look at the process of translation of hydrogel technology into products and therapies with Chris Jamidi, a business development lead at Wyss. Dave Mooney, the Robert P. Pincus Family Professor of Bioengineering at the John A. Paulson Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, leads Wyss's programmable nanomaterials platform. Dave, welcome to Disruptive. Can you share a bit about your personal path to the work that you do today? possibly some turning points or moments of decision along the way? I went to uh, probably the first decision point I had was when I went to college. Did not come from a technical background, but I received some very good advice when I got to the University of Wisconsin in my 30 seconds of uh, consultation with an advisor there. And they basically said, you're good at math and you're good at the sciences. Uh, why don't you think about becoming an engineer? And uh, actually ended up being pretty good advice. I went on to become a chemical engineer and I really enjoyed it. It was uh, fantastic. I enjoyed the technical challenge. I, I enjoyed using uh, my talents to address some of these technical problems. And I worked at companies uh, including Dow Chemical and Procter and & Gamble, which were really you know, wonderful places, wonderful companies. But I also began to realize that I wanted to have a bigger impact on people's lives. And in this, I think I was inspired by a number of my brothers and sisters who work in fields like social work, education, and medical care. And this inspired me to uh, kind of take a 90-degree turn and go to graduate school so that I could learn something about biology and figure out how to apply my engineering skills to address medical needs. Before we talk about your work on immunotherapies, can you share a bit about the evolution of cancer treatment over the years? One of the hallmarks of cancer is that cancer cells tend to grow very rapidly compared to other cells in the body. And this was recognized a number of years ago and led to the concept of trying to target that rapid proliferation of cells by using drugs that would specifically kill off rapidly dividing cells or using radiation treatment that also will more generally kill cells that are rapidly growing as versus non-growing cells. And so those two technologies, those two approaches, obviously became mainstays of treatment of cancer along with surgery, where one goes and directly removes uh, the cancerous tissue. And those three approaches have had a really tremendous impact, obviously, over the decades. However, they do not target specifically cancerous cells as versus other cells that uh, may, for example, be growing rapidly in the body, cells of our intestinal tract or other areas. So there's a lot of bystander damage. 
Uh, many other cells get killed that we would like to not be killed with these treatments. And typically, they don't lead to cures. Uh, they are treatments. They maybe beat back the cancer for a while, uh, but oftentimes the cancer simply comes back, uh, maybe in a slightly different form, a little while later. So that's kind of the the background for where things have been for a number of years. And the alternative approach that's been uh, now coming on and is becoming increasingly important is the concept that cancer cells are truly different uh, in terms of their gene expression from normal cells in the body. They're mutated. And those differences should allow our immune system to be able to recognize that these cells are different and to attack and destroy these cells. And this is actually an idea that goes back well over 100 years. But it wasn't until the advent of modern immunology where we began to really understand the cells and the molecules that people could take a rational approach to immunotherapy. But for the last few decades, then, people have been attempting to create vaccines, sometimes preventative vaccines, but uh, very frequently instead therapeutic vaccines where the vaccine in a therapeutic context is being used to treat somebody who already has cancer. And the idea is to use a vaccine, similar to how we vaccinate against uh, the flu every winter, to teach our immune system how to recognize the differences between cancerous cells and normal cells and get the immune system to destroy cells that have that uh, signature of cancer. And how has that work been progressing? In the context of therapeutic vaccines, one approach to it that's shown tremendous benefit and actually the first FDA-approved therapeutic cancer vaccine addressed this question of how to get the immune system to recognize and destroy cancer cells by removing cells of the immune system from a patient from their body and manipulating them outside the body. And the general idea here is that the tumor is being tolerated by your immune system normally. It's growing and expanding. And so a way to try to break this tolerance uh, is to actually take immune cells out of the body, away from the influence of all those signals, put them in a laboratory, and then to generate the right number of cells and to program those cells appropriately, and then to take them back to the patient with the hope that they will then generate an effective immune response and kill cancer cells. And as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, this approach is uh, not just uh, demonstrated proof of principle, but has actually now resulted in FDA-approved therapeutic cancer vaccine. So there's been tremendous success from that perspective. However, with that approach, one has to isolate cells from a patient. You have to manipulate those cells in a laboratory, and then you have to reinfuse those cells back into the patient. And so this is a, a complex process, involves many steps. Uh, there's a lot of regulatory burden, it's very expensive, and at the end of the day, uh, to this point, uh, it has actually shown limited efficacy. It gives an extension of lifespan by several months. We said, well, perhaps we could instead create a new microenvironment separate from the host or the rest of the body where we did all of this, these same activities, but we actually do them inside the body with immune cells that already exist instead of having to remove them and manipulate them and return them. This sounds like a big shift. How do you do that? What we really are highly dependent on here is the understanding that the immunologists have developed over the last couple of decades, and we're really trying to exploit and mimic, in this case, uh, what is known to happen during bacterial infection. So we create a biomaterial now uh, that we place in the body. So it's a little plastic piece of, uh, or a little piece of plastic, a plastic disc about the size of a baby aspirin tablet, and we release a drug from this piece of plastic that will attract the right kinds of immune cells. So these cells will sense this chemical and they'll actually follow the source of it and come to the material. And the biomaterial now is filled with holes. It's very porous. That's mainly about 90% empty space. So a lot of the cells can then crawl in and more or less live inside this biomaterial, kind of like them you know, crawling into a house and, and living inside this new structure that we've created inside the body. And once they are living inside this material, we can then provide signals to these cells to activate and reprogram them. And some of these signals mimic aspects of bacterial infection so that when we also provide a signature of what cancer looks like to these cells, they associate that with infection. And so they then want to generate a destructive immune response against anything that has the signature. 
So inside the body, you're releasing something that traps the targeted cells? Absolutely. Yeah, so it actually, it recruits them, and then these cells will then come and live within the material for a period of time sufficient for us to manipulate them and program them to have the desired functionalities. And how do you program them? The product that's currently in a clinical trial in stage four melanoma patients is we actually biopsy the tumor of the patients. So we get a biopsy and then we freeze dry it, kind of like you talk about freeze drying coffee. So we create a powder out of that small tissue sample and that powder will contain all of the different molecules contained in all the cells. And so it'll contain all the mutated proteins uh, that may be expressed in these cancerous cells. And we do this so that we are able to provide a lot of distinct, what are called antigens, uh, or distinct you know, molecules that provide a signature of the cancerous cell. And we can do this in a personalized manner. So we actually have the right mix of, uh, and the right signature for each individual person's cancer that we put into the device. How simple is this process for patients? Once the trials are over and you're utilizing this out in the world, what would they go through to undergo this treatment? So from the patient perspective, this is actually quite straightforward. The first uh, part of the experience for them would be that we would require a biopsy of their tumor. So these patients are typically getting some surgical removal of uh, tumor already. We would obtain the tumor sample directly from the surgical excision that they would already be undergoing. So you're just so piggybacking they, on that? So, so yeah, far, so they, nothing, nothing extra for them? Yep. So they wouldn't see a change there. And then separate from the patient, we would manufacture... Uh, these little tablets that look like aspirins. And the patients would simply come in and to an office visit, and they would have one of these placed under the skin. So there's a small incision that's made in an office visit, and then uh, that uh, is closed, and then they just go home. Wow. And we, we anticipate uh, doing several vaccinations. So they'd come in a couple of different times to get uh, subsequent vaccinations, but it'd be a very minimally invasive type of procedure and would not involve a very different experience for them than what they already are experiencing in many ways. If this can be successful, you know, probably has greatly reduced side effects as compared to things like chemotherapy or radiation treatment. And because you're specifically targeting their cancer cells, there may be no collateral damage. Exactly. And so that, you know, the, the two key advantages here, if this can be broadly successful, is that one, as you just mentioned, we're targeting what's specific about the cancerous cells, and we have seen no evidence to date that we are damaging non-cancerous cells, so it looks like we really are minimizing any effects that, that are off-target. And then the other key feature of your immune system is that it has memory. So, you know, once you're vaccinated with the flu vaccine, then you'll never get that particular strain of flu, and the same expectation holds here, that if we've generated an effective immune response against a patient's cancer, they shouldn't have to worry about recurrence because if some of those cancer cells started to reappear, the immune system would be capable of recognizing and destroying those cells a second go-round. So it could prevent recurrence, which is uh, you know, obviously a very big concern and a, and a major aspect of the lethality of cancer. So one of the things that you said is that uh, the patient would receive a few of these implants in the course yes. of a month of treatment, and for if successful, for the rest of their life, they may be free of that cancer. Yes. Wow, that's exciting. Um, where do you stand right now? What have you know? What, what status are you in terms of trials? What's been successful? What's up next? Yeah, so we're still at uh, early stage in the overall process right now. We've completed a, a very large number of preclinical studies in animals, and those have shown you know very dramatic potency and effectiveness of this approach. Uh, we've also looked at the safety in animals, and it appeared to be safe. And based on that data, the FDA gave us approval to do a phase one uh, clinical trial, which is a physician-sponsored trial. So this is actually a trial that is being jointly run and jointly financed by the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and the Wies Institute. And in this trial, we have approval to treat a total of 25 patients who have stage four melanoma. 11 patients have been enrolled, and I believe those 11 have completed treatment at this point in time. Um, so it's still very early days, only a few patients, but at this point in time, uh, the vaccine is very well tolerated in these patients. We're getting the response that we would have anticipated based on the animal studies. And we, it appears we are getting a biological response uh, to the cancer antigens and having some impact, uh, though at this stage it's still you know, quite early, as I mentioned, but very promising. 
Yeah, sounds very good. Now, you mentioned the Dana-Farber Kansas Institute. Can you talk to us a little bit about the collaboration uh, between uh, Dana-Farber and Wies and how uh, that influences or accelerates your, your progress? That collaboration between the Dana-Farber and the Wies is absolutely critical to this project and to its progress and its success. You know, we bring tremendous expertise on the engineering side. Uh, we need to harness that to a knowledge of the basic cancer immunology. And then obviously we need to also then be able to interact with the clinicians who actually have the clinical experience and the clinical knowledge. And so this project you know, would not have gone nearly as rapidly and probably would not have been nearly successful without that interaction. And now we jointly produce the vaccine uh, that they then place in the patients. And what's the big vision at this point? If all goes well, how will this change cancer treatment and what sort of timeline are you hopeful for? We already have data in preclinical models showing that, for example, in models of glioblastoma and lung cancer and other types of cancer, it looks like this also can be quite useful. So the hope would be that this is something that could be broadly used in a wide variety of different types of cancer patients uh, to generate a really potent immune response and cause destruction of their cancer cells and as we mentioned earlier, prevent recurrence. So the, you know, kind of the big picture is that this may have a really dramatic impact in treatment of a very large number of people. Now, I don't expect that this will be the, you know, the silver bullet that is used all by itself to treat patients. Cancer is a complex disease, and this therapy will most likely be used in concert with other therapies, uh, some that have already been developed and others that are undergoing development. And together, I think that immunotherapy in general promises to really bring a new era to cancer treatment where we're able to truly cure a very high percentage of patients. Right. As you pointed out earlier, much of the treatment nowadays uh, prolongs life uh a few months, several months, et cetera, and, but few actually achieve cure. Yes, yeah. and that's the, the promise of immunotherapy that is truly providing cures where, where patients remain cancer-free you know, for very long periods of time. Okay, let's shift to the hydrogels and gel-based drug delivery. How has this come about? What's the problem for which this is the solution? And how does this approach solve or improve on current methods of treatment? Kind of the background for this area of research is that we, you know, we hear all the time about all the revolutions in the life sciences that have been uh, underway for the last several decades. You know, we hear genomics, proteomics, you know, the stem cell advances. All of these have led to a tremendous increase in what we understand about the body, how it works, and about disease. Now, one of the challenges, though, is that the potential therapies that come out of these advances tend to be very different types of, let's call them drugs, than what has historically been used in the human body. The new drug entities that come out of this type of knowledge are things like proteins that are big molecules that degrade or are destroyed easily in the body. And delivery ends up becoming an absolutely crucial problem for a lot of these new types of therapies, whether we're talking about proteins, uh, nucleotide-based therapies like gene therapy, or cells. And why delivery is such a challenge is because all of these things tend to uh, either die or degrade very rapidly if they're not placed in the right conditions. So their duration of action is really short. But most of these things need to be around for some extended period of time to actually have the desired effect. And the other part of this is that these molecules often are very potent and they can have very big effects on the biology of the human body so we really want them to only be having those effects at certain places. And so this is where engineering comes into play, that we're looking to develop delivery systems that introduce these into the body and get them to the right place at the right time for the right period of time. And so we use a class of materials called hydrogels to accomplish this. How do you create these hydrogels? And how have you chosen the substance you create them from? Yes. So I'll first of all, just briefly mention, so a hydrogel is in essence just a water-filled network, uh, typically of a polymer. And this, how, why we use these in part is because the, if we look at our bodies, we have cells in the tissues in our body, but then there's also material around those cells and that material is typically a hydrogel. So we're actually taking inspiration from the body and the kinds of materials 
that the body usually builds with. If possible, we try to start with polymers that are either naturally derived, so there's a natural source to them, or other molecules that have been used in the human body for some period of time so we know that they're safe and well tolerated in the body. So that's kind of one of the criteria. Another criteria is that we actually have to be able to use these specific polymers to generate hydrogels with the right types of chemical, physical, and biological properties for the specific application. And for this reason, we end up you know, using a wide variety of different materials because they will give us different types of properties. But in general, what they all do is once we form a gel and we have placed these, let's say these proteins or these cells within them, they protect the cells from the body. They keep these from being degraded or from being killed. And then they slowly release the drug or the cell into the surrounding tissue over time so that we get a long-term durable presence of these agents uh, to drive the biology and, and drive the, uh, the therapy. So that's the two problems you were talking about. One was the rapid degradation and two was the need for long-lasting effects. And you, this seems to solve both. What have hydrogels is there a history? How long have we been working with this sort of thing that, that you're building on? Yeah, so we've been working with you know, hydrogels for, for a very long period of time. Um, there's, as I mentioned, hydrogels, if you look at the tissues in our body, many of the tissues in our body uh, could be characterized as being hydrogels. So you know, the, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, uh, biology decided a long time ago that hydrogels were really useful uh, for building tissues and controlling biology. Uh, from a man-made perspective, we certainly have been using hydrogels for many decades. Um, you know, if you go back to uh, it, when you visit your dentist when you were a child and you were having impressions taken, oftentimes those are hydrogels. There are materials that are used to promote wound healing that are very frequently hydrogels. A lot of the foods we eat are hydrogels. So kind of hydrogels are all around us, and we've been using them for many purposes for you know many decades or hundreds or thousands of years. And what are the pieces of this that are new in what you're doing that give you new abilities, new properties? Yeah, so I think there's a few different aspects to what we're doing that are, that's new. Uh, one is that we have determined how to appropriately put the polymer networks together so that we get the right types of physical and chemical properties. So for example, something as simple as we want the gel to deliver, let's say, a cell or a drug for some period of time, then we would like it to degrade or dissolve itself so it's not permanently in the human body. So we've developed a variety of means that in which we can really regulate how long it lasts once it's placed in the body. We've also developed a variety of technologies that allow us to control how strongly the drug or the cell holds onto the gel so it controls how rapidly it leaves or how slowly it ends up leaving from that network. So those are two you know, kind of general areas that we've been focusing on. A couple things uh, more recently that are you know, more specific in recent advances. Uh, one is that we've been making, and you alluded to this before, these shape memory hydrogels. Yeah. So we can make a gel that we predefine its shape and structure and outside the body. And we've created these in such a means that they have the ability to be deformed uh, very dramatically, including being put through a needle. And then once they're released from confinement, they can then rehydrate and go back to the original size and shape. And this now allows us to deliver an exact volume, so an exact dose of a drug, for example, where we would like it in the body because we can actually know exactly what the volume is of that device. We can control its structure, its architecture, so we can control how readily, let's say, cells in the body can interface with this device that's releasing these drugs. And we also know, unlike uh, if we just inject a gel and allow it to form in the body, you know, it may, it may move from that site, it may be dissipated, but here if we're introducing a discrete unit, we know exactly where that is, and it stays where we placed it. That notion of being able to deform it and shrink it, and then small enough that it can be injected, and then once inside the body, pop up, not only to its original size, but its original shape. How is that done? <laughs> yeah, so it's depend uh, how we how we technically do this is we, uh, when you have these 
polymers, these long molecules that create the hydrogel, they have to be linked to each other in order to form a stable hydrogel. And the process that we use to form these, what we call these shape memory uh, cryogels, is we partially freeze the solution while this chemical reaction is happening. So we let ice crystals start to form within this volume. And then the polymer gets excluded from the regions where the ice crystals are. And so it then cross-links and forms kind of a, a network around these ice crystals. We then, after the reaction is done, we warm up the whole system and the ice crystals just melt. And now we have, in essence, holes wherever those ice crystals were. So we have a very high empty space and that allows us now to take what's maybe is a very large overall structure and we can, with a relatively low amount of force, compress it or squish it so it becomes a much smaller volume than it was originally. We're in essence kind of compacting all of the solids into the space that was empty before. Now the reason then it actually wants to spring back to its original dimensions is that after we release the force, that there's, it's kind of like a rubber band and that it wants to go back to its original size and shape if there's not a large force being applied to it. So after it's made it through the needle, it into the tissue, it then will just elastically return to its original size and shape. You're making them out of a material that is readily available, but one that you can precisely tune so that you know exactly how long certain processes will take. Can you talk about how you do that? One way that we try to tune these is by controlling how we cross-link or how we attach the polymer chains to each other. And then we also can control the number of these attachment points to control things like the physical properties and how slowly or how rapidly they will degrade. So we, we use a wide variety of different chemistries. We can also put in bridges between the polymer chains that are permanent if we want this uh, hydrogel to last a very long time, or we can put in bridges that uh, are initially very stable, but that have some type of functionality where the presence of water makes it degrade, or maybe uh, some molecule cells in the area will make it degrade, so it will, re it will disappear in response to the local cell activity. So there's a lot of flexibility in how you put these structures together so you can control how and when they go away. So you've got, you've got flexibility on the one hand and precision on the other. Yes. Now, what is click chemistry? And where does that come into play? Yeah, so click chemistry is a broad term for a, a wide variety of different types of chemistries that we've been exploring in the context of making these types of gels recently. And the uh, we did not invent click chemistry that's been invented by others, but we're now exploring whether or not they can be useful to do the kinds of things that we want to do with these hydrogels for delivery. And people call them click chemistries uh, because they are chemistries where you have two different agents that more or less will spontaneously click together when they come in contact. So the idea here is that we have one type of polymer that has one of the click partners and another polymer that has the second partner. And when you simply mix these together, when the two components find each other, they will spontaneously react without needing to add energy or heat, uh, light, or any type of uh, other molecule, they will spontaneously react just with each other. And that's, I should say, another key feature to these is that they typically have selectivity or specificity such that they only want to react with each other and nothing else. So a lot of the chemistries that we've used in the past, uh, when we form these gels, if we have cells or we have drugs also mixed in, we always have the danger that the chemistry that's causing the gel to form might also react with the cell or the drug and harm it. Here, with these click chemistries, uh, since they are so specific, we can encapsulate cells or we can have proteins or other drug molecules present and they are not affected at all by this click chemistry. It's completely distinct and separate from the proteins or cells. Hmm. So again, more precision. Yes, very precise here in terms of being able to independently regulate the formation of the gel and its properties separately from the biological cargo that these gels will be carrying. So where are you now? Uh, what, what stage of, of uh, research are you in and, and what, what's next? 
Yeah, so we're actually we're exploring a, a wide range of different potential applications. Going back to the cancer immunotherapy, uh, some of these cryogels we've actually been using to, in a similar manner as the implantable device I described earlier, where we are using these to uh, promote an uh, immune response, in essence, a therapeutic vaccine, but one that is now injectable instead of implantable. Uh, we have been using these to deliver different types of protein cargos that promote regeneration of things like muscle or bone or blood vessels, uh, exploring using these in wound healing. Uh, we're also exploring using these to deliver, uh, going back to something we started with, uh, chemotherapy drugs, which will still be used for a very long time, and whether or not we can use these to deliver chemotherapeutic agents much more precisely to desired sites, for example, at the tumor. And you've been using ultrasound to turn chemotherapy delivery on and off rather than simply the sustained relief that is the norm. Oftentimes, drugs are delivered just by, you know, injecting a solution into the body and then, you know, they go everywhere. You can't really control where they go or how long they're around. If we take the controlled drug delivery approach that we've been discussing, we can put them in a material and we can have them released in a sustained manner. But most of those systems are what I would call pre-programmed, that when we put the device in the body, we actually already know how that drug or that cell will come out of the device as a function of time. And that's highly desirable in many, many situations. But sometimes you might say, well, this particular patient isn't really responding to this dose, so we really need it to release more rapidly. Or we may say, gee, there's a particular time when we want a lot of drug to be released and the rest of the time just some low level is fine. And so we've been exploring the idea of having real-time control where we trigger from outside the body the release. And one of the approaches we've been exploring with this is to use ultrasound. And ultrasound is a very widely used technique and instrumentation in medicine. Uh, We're all, I think, pretty familiar with it. But you can apply ultrasound from outside the body. And the concept here is that when you apply ultrasound to a particular location where we've placed one of our gels, the energy from the ultrasound can cause a disruption in the structure. In essence, it transiently opens up the structure of the gel and makes it have relatively large pores within it. And that allows drugs or cells to then come out very quickly. And once we turn the ultrasound off and stop inputting the ultrasound energy into the gel, then the gel will self-heal. It'll go back to its original dimensions and its original structure. And so the drug release will go back to the original baseline level. So we can turn on and then turn back down drug release using things like ultrasound from these systems. Would that work in terms of pain relief? Yeah. So that's one of the areas that we think this could have great potential. You know, patients uh, will have, uh, will periodically have times when there is much greater pain and where they may want temporarily a higher dose of drug to be released. And so one of the visions for how this may be applied is that you would put one of these gels into a patient who had a need for pain relief, and they would have the capability themselves of periodically turning up the release rate if they needed more relief at a particular time. One challenge that we're addressing now as well that I'm really excited about is all of these systems we've been describing to this point in time for delivery have a finite lifetime. Eventually, their cargo is exhausted, the drug is released, and they're done. At that point in time, if we still need to have more drug being delivered, we would be faced with a situation where we'd have to put in another device. And that certainly is feasible in many situations, but in certain cases, that would not be desirable. And so we've been exploring the idea of reloading drug delivery devices. And the idea here is is really simple, but I think potentially quite profound which is that if you have a a depot someplace in the body that you could introduce either intravenously or orally just by taking a tablet, uh, the drug molecule. And the drug molecule, once it gets into the body, would have the potential, perhaps with these click chemistries that we were describing earlier, to specifically bind to that depot and become concentrated at that depot, in essence, to reload that depot with drug. David, you just introduced the term depot. What do you mean by depot? When I utilize the term depot, I'm really referring to uh, the use of one of these hydrogels or materials as a location where we put a large quantity of drug, in essence, store the drug or store the cells uh, for ultimate release into the body. This will slowly be released either 
in a pre-programmed manner or in a manner in which we uh, define in real time. Finally, David, as you look at your work, how do these two fields that we talked about fit together? How do they make sense for you going forward? Ultimately, how these two, I think, really relate to each other is that we're trying to use materials and biomaterials to control biology in the human body. We'd like to be able to design materials that plug in to specific pathways and regulate biology in really precise manner uh, to treat and hopefully cure disease in many situations. Thank you, David. And now we're going to take a closer look at the process of translation of hydrogel technology into products and therapies with Chris Jamitti, a business development lead at VEAS. Chris Jamitti joined the VEAS Institute early in 2015 to guide translation strategy and technology development in the areas of programmable nanomaterials and regenerative medicine. Chris holds a Bachelor of Science in Biomedical Engineering from Johns Hopkins and a PhD in Biomedical Engineering jointly conferred by Georgia Institute of Technology's College of Engineering and Emory University School of Medicine. Chris Jamitti, welcome to Disruptive. Can you share just a bit about your path, what you've been working on, and why you chose to move to the VEAS? Sure. So as you mentioned in the intro, my background is predominantly in regenerative medicine, and having spent a fair bit of time in industry, uh, I have seen the process firsthand of bringing a uh, new therapy through multiple clinical trials, through the FDA, and then launching it, uh, bringing on sales and marketing. So I very much love that process of bench to bedside. I loved it so much that I wanted to do it all over again. And what better place than the VEAS, which is uh, an embarrassment of technological riches where uh, we can really pull through some amazing new technologies. So let's focus on the hydrogels. What do you see as your role in helping this technology to achieve the impact it can have in the real world? Sure. So I see my role uh, as divided in two uh, synergistic but slightly different halves. The first is working with the internal technical teams and giving them um, some guidance from the market's perspective. What are the unmet medical needs? What are the business opportunities? What are some of the uh, competitor or IP hurdles that we'll need to clear? The other half of my position is more externally focused, where I'm having conversations on a frequent level with potential partner companies, uh, investment groups, be it VCs um, or angel investors, uh, and trying to get a sense from them where these technologies could go if this represents a potential partnering possibility or even a, a spin-out company. And so in a very cyclic fashion, I can bring that feedback back into the internal team, have the conversation, and it keeps sort of iterating from there so that we can create the most valuable technology that we can. So you function as a translator in the translation process. Yeah, I tend to think um, I'm, I'm bilingual, if you will. Um, and my <laughs> You speak both being, industry and science. I, I do. I speak, I speak business and science. Where we are at the VEAS, a lot of the technologies are very early stage, um, where, frankly, it's a really cool technology. We recognize it's really powerful and has a lot of different applications. But the question is, what do we do with it? What is that ideal indication? What is the killer app, if you will? Mm -hmm. And so it's my my role to, as I mentioned earlier, really understand from the internal team what this technology is good at and what it is not so good at. And uh, through market research and just understanding the industry, defining what indication we should go after in oncology or in orthopedics and that kind of thing. And so... Hopefully that is uh, the, the spark that really helps focus the team. And obviously we have a tremendous number of uh, very brilliant scientists here that can, um, once we have that target, really push it forward and uh, add a lot of value in experiments such that, um, a, as I mentioned, a, an industry partner or a VC sees this as something that we should bring out. Can you give us a specific example of that process in action? Sure. So I think this uh, refillable hydrogel system that uh, came out of Dr. Mooney's lab is, is an example where it was an undefined um, avenue. W what do we do with this? Where do we go? Um, and in close conjunction with Dr. Mooney and Yevgeny Brudno, who's uh, really the lead on this, 
we were able to whittle it down and say that oncology is really where we need to be going with this. And we're um, starting to move forward with that translational process and finding uh, clinical champions that are, you know, literally right across the street from us um, in the wonderful Longwood Medical Area. Um, so we're really starting to put some momentum behind that. Where do you stand at this moment? What What's right in front of you in terms of decisions that have to be made, pathways you're going to take, that sort of thing? I'd say that um, a lot of it is defining what that killer app is. And once you're there, it really becomes a mix of business factors uh, and technical factors that the team has to really agree upon. Do we have the IP? Do we have IP security that we need? Is there sufficient market opportunity? Is this at a technological maturity point where we're really ready to push it out and try to spin it off into a company? Or do we need to perform multiple other experiments before we can really say that this is a real proof of concept and it's sufficiently mature to go out and get additional funding. You mentioned the word de-risking. In some of my previous conversations with folks at VIS, uh, it's become clear that a lot of academic institutions, academic research centers, will de-risk sort of academically, theoretically, scientifically. And at VIS, you de-risk along that, but you also de-risk commercially. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. So having been in industry and interacting on a fairly frequent basis with industry, I really have to understand what their pain points are. And by way of example, um, one of the most frequent and earlier hurdles to get over is the notion of safety. So a lot of times in academia, the early development work or some of the preclinical work is showing proof of concept in some particular indication, whether that's oncology or orthopedics or ophthalmology. But we don't oftentimes look in a rigorous fashion at the safety, the biodistribution, those types of things that is really one of the first bars that industry and more pointedly, the regulatory authorities such as the FDA will be looking for prior to proceeding into um, a human clinical trial, for example. Okay. So with the hydrogels, what are the challenges that you're looking at right now and, and, and some of your thoughts of how to overcome them? So with the hydrogel, as, our, as we previously discussed, there, there are a fair number of them out there, whether it's hyaluronic acid, alginate, or uh, synthetic polymers. There is a need to really differentiate that. What's different? Um, alginates have been used widely for a, a great number of years, and that's a good thing in a very number, uh, in, a, in a number of scenarios. But what we have to do is add that wrinkle, add that whatever it is, a biologic or some sort of um, releasing mechanism that is truly novel that people can look at it and say, wow, they've taken this um, very robust, very well-known, very safe technology and added this new twist on it that can really close some gaps. And so in terms of uh, your work right now at the VIS with the hydrogels, with the cryogels, what are some of those uh, secret sauces, unique pieces that excite you, you know, and, and fit the criteria you were just describing? Hydrogels uh, that I mentioned uh, earlier from uh, Yevgeny uh, Brodno and uh, Dave Mooney's lab is that of a refillable therapeutic depot. So here we have an alginate that we load with a drug. So um, it elutes that drug over time. And that in and of itself isn't novel. There are plenty of drug-eluting devices. Drug-eluting stents is a common analog. The problem with a lot of those technologies right now is once that drug elutes, that's it. There's no way to refill that stent or some other eluting mechanism. What Yevgeny and his teammates um, uh, in Dave's lab have been able to do is engineer a new chemistry into that uh, hydrogel such that you, through an IV or um, oral refilling, can deposit or load more drug into that depot. So you can uh, almost infinitely 
uh, elute drug from these depots just by refilling it by taking a pill or an IV. You mentioned alginates. You're talking there about the substances from which these gels are constructed? Yes. So alginate is one of the more popular hydrogels that's been around for a number of years. It's been tested in humans. It's uh, generally recognized as safe. It's uh, you know been used in medicine and and in the food industry for a great number of years. And is and that, that that's is, the one that comes from brown seaweed? That's the one. What are some of the next steps to accelerate translation? What are some of the things you're working on right now? I think at the core of a lot of these um, development efforts is intellectual property. Um, be that trade secret, but usually patent. So um, we spend a, a fair amount of time on um, really understanding the patent landscape, the competition, and making sure that we have that locked up or at least feel very good about moving forward and investing in these technologies. So that is a, a foundational um, developmental effort. Past that is, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, an element of safety. Um, and that can be uh, either organic in that we've added some safety through animal experiments or in vitro experiments uh, in the lab, or just by having a better understanding of what sits at the FDA or what other groups are doing. And then after that, it's really understanding, um, showing the, the efficacy in a high-value clinical indication, what, you know, oncology, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I think we have that, we have a really robust technology, something that's marketable, something that's translatable. Is it best to bring it into the clinic? Uh, we have great capabilities in the Harvard network to bring things into the clinic. Or is it best fit for a more vertically integrated company, a big pharma that has the clinical infrastructure, that has the regulatory infrastructure that might be better to shepherd this product along through the clinic. In terms of, let's say, a bigger or a long-term vision, if all goes well, how does the work that the, the project you're working on with the hydrogels, the cryogels, how will it change drug delivery and, and, and lay out a timeline, you know, in five years, in 10 years, what can you imagine you've changed or improved? Uh, I'd like to think that in 10 years, you have these drugs approved or these therapeutic, uh, oftentimes combination products um, approved. And it's a pretty laborious pathway. Uh, most of these technologies are going to take at least three clinical trials that oftentimes last at least a year, if not longer. So it is a it is a rigorous pathway to bring something to market, both in terms of time, uh, the number of people involved, and the cost. So I do think that if we really have a good understanding of how these things work um, and what it's going to take to get there, we can set that off, set these projects on their course now. And in some amount of time, we'll be really treating patients and Um, whether that is curing a disease, alleviating a disease, or the symptoms associated with it, or oftentimes, you know, just the the course of therapies can be really onerous on on patients. So um, sort of reducing that overall morbidity and mortality uh, in our population is something that we we aim to do in in the next 10 years. What sorts of applications do you foresee? Part of the beauty of hydrogels is that they are very biocompatible and they're very tunable. So we can engineer them to last for a long time. We can engineer them to last for a very short amount of time. Um, They can elute drugs or they can bind things. So um, they are very flexible. And because of that, they can be used in a wide variety of clinical indications, whether it's oncology, ophthalmology, orthopedics, general surgery, cardiovascular. You mentioned that it might take three clinical trials to establish efficacy and safety. Now, is that where you need to probably partner or license or launch a startup to come up with the kind of finances that are able to afford those steps in the process? Yes, absolutely. So I think whereas the VIS is absolutely critical to bringing something that is ready for a clinical trial and in some instances, actually into a clinical trial. And that is tremendous. That Having that first-in-man clinical data is, is a real value inflection point for the project. That said, to continue taking something all the way through registration where the FDA eventually approves it, 
requires a tremendous amount of resources and uh, and expertise as well. And so a more vertically integrated company like a big pharma or a big biotech that has clinical operations units that have medical, regulatory, so on and so forth, that can really not only have the expertise to um, efficiently shepherd those projects through, but frankly, have the money to do it as well. Finally, Chris, you took quite a leap less than a year ago to come to the Wies Institute. What's working for you? I think one of the unique features of the Wies is the focus or the um, imperative to bring on uh, staff scientists and associates that have a wealth of industry experience. And so it's a community that has logged a number of years in big pharma or big biotech and med tech. So it's not just one person that says, uh, well, I've spent some time in industry and I think this is how we should be approaching things. It's really the team. They've been there. Teams have um, brought other projects through um, clinical trials or through the FDA. And so I can really appreciate that it is a is a translational center where the academic engine of innovation is still humming along and the VIS putting industry veterans onto these projects really adds a tremendous amount of value as they continue to mature. You've been listening to Disruptive Cancer Vaccine and Hydrogels. I'm Terrence McNally. My guests have been Dave Mooney and Chris Jamitti. You can learn more about Cancer Vaccine, Hydrogels, and an exciting range of other projects at the Wies website, wies.harvard.edu. That's W-Y-S-S dot harvard.edu, where you'll find articles, videos, animations, and additional podcasts. To have podcasts delivered to you, you can sign up at the Wies site or on iTunes or SoundCloud.com. My thanks to Seth Kroll and Mary Tolikas of the Wies Institute and to J.C. Swadek in production. And to you, our listeners, I look forward to being with you again soon.